I had something I was going to read here uh, from an article in the paper today. And what we was going to study is uh, Mark had suggested either last time or the time before last, last that he would like to take the time to study the sacrificial system uh, of the Old Testament and the reason behind it. And so we'll look at that and then come from that into the New Testament. Uh, here is the, the article uh, as a contrast with some things that are going on in our society and have been for some time. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court stole our nation's history. Our great heritage has been censored from our schools. Even if our teachers knew the truth, they could not teach that 52 of our nation's 55 founding fathers were orthodox evangelical Christians. 34% of all quotes from the founding fathers of the United States came from the Bible. 60% of their quotes were from men who used the Bible to form their conclusions about government. In all, 94% of our founding forefathers' quotes were Bible-based according to a University of Houston study. It's also hidden from our students that our system of government, which the world envies, is based upon the Bible and the biblically-based writings of such men as John Locke, John Locke, and William Blackstone. John Quincy Adams was quoted as saying that the highest glory of the American Revolution was that it connected in one indissolvable bond, the principles of civil government and the principles of Christianity. It was unthinkable to our founding fathers that the Bible and Christian teachings would be removed from our schools. At the time, the Bible was the principal textbook in our public schools, and other textbooks drew upon its truths of edu to educate children. In fact, Fisher Ames, the writer of the final version of the First Amendment, later wrote that the Bible must be kept as the number one textbook in our country. He said the Bible was the source of morality and behavior in America. Uh, Benjamin Rush, another founder and a signer of the Declaration of Independence who served in the administrations of three presidents, uh, Jefferson, Madison, and Adams, wrote that if the Bible is ever removed from the schools, we would suffer from an explosion of crime. Uh, spoken two centuries ago. The concept of biblical principles in our schools was occasionally challenged, but after careful study, the challenges were always dismissed. Uh, for example, in 1844, the Supreme Court of the United States concluded our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based on and must embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. The court cited 87 different historical and legal precedents from the Founding Fathers. Another challenge to the Bible in, in our country was in 1853, prompted a one-year congressional study of our history. The resulting House report said, had the people during the Revolution had a suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. In this age, there is no substitute for Christianity. That was the religion of the founders of the Republic, and they expected it to remain as a religion of their descendants. 
the father of our country, George Washington, still speaks to us through his famous farewell address to the American people. Formerly, all history books in the United States included this address by George Washington, and it was memorized by a multitude of students down through the years. It is now unknown to our students because it is filled with religious references. In short, the speech is no longer contained in any American history book because of its references to religion. Washington said that religion and morality are indispensable to political prosperity. And if anyone labored to subvert these great pillars, they could not be called a patriot. He also warned if we desert our religious obligations, there was no security for either property or life. Uh, he goes on with a few more quotes there. Suffice it to say, you can see that's quite different than what many people have been led to believe about the uh, founding forefathers, about our Constitution, and the attitude of the Supreme Court down through the, down through the centuries. Uh, in the, there was a study that was actually backed by the ACLU uh, is early, I guess this was about last year when it came out, and I, I, don't, I think everybody here is pretty familiar with the ACLU. If you keep up with the news at all, you know it's an atheist-based organization. But even as an atheist-based organization, it did agree with the fact that uh, religion had been stripped, uh, and Christianity specifically, out of our history books, all the way, out of our textbooks, all through school, and that in reality, uh, no matter what anybody thought, the, the truth of our people was not being reflected. In other words, even if the, the writer of the history book is an atheist, uh, the truth is that the majority of the people who were involved in the founding of our country, writing the Constitution and making the laws, were devout believers, and it was their thinking on the Bible that influenced their writing and the laws that they made. You can also see from that, uh, in that ruling in 1853 and 1844, uh, that the idea that you have the Constitution, and it really doesn't matter who's on the Supreme Court, you know, that they're just judges and you got the Constitution, uh, that is nonsense uh, to anybody that believes that. Obviously, the Constitution has to be interpreted. And if you have people as part of your Constitution who believe in God and believe in the Bible, then obviously you're going to get different interpretations than if they don't. And what we have in uh, recent years is that we, we in our situation, we have an interpretation that has been based for the most part in prior years uh, on an atheist thinking uh, Supreme Court. And maybe one of the more important things that's taken place in recent years is simply the changing a little bit of the Supreme Court. But the interpretations that have come forth now, uh, it's against the law to have the Ten Commandments. Uh, on the, in Kentucky, they had, had schools that had the Ten Commandments in their hall of their school. Uh, they had to remove them because they, they, didn't want to go to, they couldn't afford to go to court with the ACLU. Uh, it's against the law to have a, a prayer at a graduation ceremony. I know that some of them do it, but it's against the law. Uh, it's against the law to have a benediction before a football game or any type of event like that whatsoever. Uh, what atheists have not been able to do at the voting booth 
they have been able to do through the court system. And so that a, a very small percentage of atheists, about four or five percent in our country, have been able to dominate our textbooks and the thinking of a lot of people and a lot of our institutions uh, simply by the use of the court system. And it's been going on for some time. But again, there is no way that a person would pick up a textbook in college or in any or high school or even in elementary school today and study American history and have any realization whatsoever that those founding forefathers, for the most part, were very, very strong evangelical Christians, uh, that men like Washington and Lincoln, that their speeches were literally full of quotes from the Bible or, or the writers, uh, people that were influenced by the Bible. Uh, in fact, I know I, out of curiosity, I've gleamed ours each time at Swiss. We, we've got new uh, new history book we started are starting with this year, and I've already gleamed it. There is nothing but the very briefest mention uh, of any religiousness whatsoever in this country, so, so far as Christianity. There's there are no quotes there uh, from any speech where the writer either used the Bible or had a quote based on that. I mean, and you have to literally go out of your way not to have those quotes there because. Uh, they were so much a part of the thinking of those individuals. I think uh, all of us, uh, as we study, we're studying on a particular subject tonight, but I think the, that the bottom line, and the reason I read the article for is that there's more to being a Christian than just simply Bible study, that if all we get out of our studies here on Friday night and on Wednesday night and on Sunday, or whenever you, whenever you go to a service or your own personal study, if all you get out of that is information that you just simply put in your mind, uh, we really can't do a whole lot of good for, for God and for Christianity. It's only when we take that information and realize that we have a responsibility to speak out and do some things in the society in which we're in. Uh, the atheists, I think, are a good example that they represent four to five percent of the population and they are definitely have been more they have definitely been more effective on our textbooks uh, than Christians who who represent the overwhelming majority of the population and while they've been doing that uh, Christians for the most part have been setting back and concentrating on a whole lot of things that maybe are not near as important as, as those areas uh, Anybody want to make any comment before we get into the, the study itself? Um, there's something that it's kind of been confusing to me in the past, I don't know, while I've been thinking about it, that it does seem right to me that, you know, we should base our thinking in, in the politics and all on the Bible, but I'm not sure to what kind of approach we should use. I see like, the, say, the pro-life groups or whatever, they get out and they... Mm -hmm. They're in front of the clinics and everything, and, and we, we select Supreme Court justices that, you know, are conservative in their thinking because, you know, the Supreme Court really is just a, they dictate the law, they don't, I don't know, it's, it's so complicated, but I guess my, my thought is, I'm not sure to what extent can you force, no, I don't know if it'd be forcing religion on people, but use those principles which are right anyway. <clears throat> If the, if the majority doesn't want them, you know, what do you do? All right, the key word there is the word uh, force, I think, Mark. Uh, these people, Washington, 
and all those others you know that I mentioned all that influenced our Constitution, the Supreme Court and all, that was the difference. What we see now is that uh, Christians uh, uh, involved with abortion and they march and they get around the places you know and they're being arrested and things of this nature. Uh, personally, I, I disagree with that 100%. And the whole idea of forcing a religion or anything like that, uh, that, uh, you know, that's out of, out of character with Christianity. Jesus didn't force anything on anybody. The, the point was that the reason our society was that way and the founding forefathers and uh, Washington and those people is that Christians, uh, evangelical conservative Christians, simply made up a bigger percent of our population then than they did now. And so obviously in a democracy where you're electing people to represent you, if a bigger percent of your population are devout Christians, then they in turn will wind up in key positions and it will simply influence their thinking. In other words, if, if you, for example, wind up in the Senate or in the Congress or in the Supreme Court, uh, your views as a Christian are definitely going to influence your thinking and, and the way you interpret matters and all. If you wind up a teacher of history in the classroom, or if you are government or anything of that nature, or if you wind up as a superintendent of a school system or a lawyer, whatever your position, if you are a Christian, then you definitely will be influenced in your thinking in those areas. Well, that really was the way that... Uh, Christianity conquered the Roman Empire. Rome was a totalitarian government. It was just by one by one of converting individual people. And so by the time you hit Constantine in the fourth century, uh, Christianity dominated. It was, the do it was the dominant religion. Well, in this country, that's the way it was. Well, now what has happened is that uh, although we talk about you know our numbers going up in the church, and this is somewhat of a fallacy, uh, it's, it's really not, and the, the figures are, are somewhat misused. As a percentage of the population, Christianity is down. In other words, we're up in number uh, to where, say, we were back uh, uh, at the turn of the century, a whole lot up in number to what in the days of Washington. Uh, in 1776, it's estimated that the entire United States had about 4 million people. That's the size of Tennessee right now. So. Uh, Christianity is up tremendously in number, but as a percentage of the population, we're down. All right, and then uh, what has also happened among those who call themselves Christians, uh, the bigger percent would be considered liberal in their views to the Bible. And when I use the term liberal, I don't like, use it like it's used in the Church of Christ, where they, they call everybody that differs with them on some point a liberal. I, I think that's nonsense, too. Uh, but I'm using it in the sense that the conservative or traditional view uh, by the apostles, the early church fathers, and all, that this material was written by men who were inspired by God. All right, now the, the liberal view, uh, and this is the way that it would be used in Christendom as a whole, uh, is that. Uh, uh, this is not written by men who were inspired by God. It's written by men who were seeking after God. And so rather than being a, a revelation 
uh, from God to man, it becomes man's effort to find God. And that's why that, that you have things like uh, the United Methodist Ministers, Episcopal Ministers, uh, Churches of Christ Uniting Ministers, who come out very strongly for abortion rights and things of that nature, you know, that, uh, and, and find no contradiction. The, the Bible to them is that was Paul's opinion. We have evolved further than Paul. So I think the, the way is, is not to force that, but, uh, but as we, the idea behind our getting a deep knowledge and understanding and, and, and the understanding of evidences and the wherewithal of why you believe in all is that we're going to have to be more evangelical in speaking out and reaching others. And as we become more evangelical and simply convert more people, I think then and only then are you going to see you know, changes in, in society. And also that when you look at these people, their Christianity, the ones we've just you know, read about and all, it, it, it carried into their life. Uh, I think too often with us that Christianity is something that's for Sunday and Wednesday night, and, and it's very shadow. Uh, in its, I'm talking about the average Christian, and, and this is, I'm speaking from a, um, a fundamentalist background in the Church of Christ. The average member of the Church of Christ has a, a pathetic knowledge of the Bible, not a deep knowledge at all. Uh, you know, despite all the talk, it's it's just simply it's simply not there. And, and, and when you're looking at the church as a whole, I mean, after all, half your membership don't even come to a Bible study on Wednesday or, or Sunday night. You know, in any in any in any given church, half of them won't be there to Sunday morning uh, Bible class or anything like that. So that uh, that unless there is more zeal in in studying, so that uh, when you talk to an atheist or an infidel. You have the ability to do something more than say, "Here, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized." That you, you know, you can. You've done the study to go do more than that. Then I don't think we will change that thing. Uh, but it's. But we need more that are study doing just exactly what you're doing, and that is studying, but then doing it with the attitude that you know I want to derive this understanding so I can get out there and and share this information with others. There are a lot of tremendously good people who believe wrong things simply because they're operating on the information that's in their mind. Nobody can think any better than the information they got in their mind, uh, no matter how sincere they are. Anybody else want to comment or make any observations? I think um, you know, looking at what the influence that the atheists have had on the media and how it works. Well, some of the stuff we're doing is, uh, you know, I'll have, I need to get on in the thing, but I guess when I read that and then I see some of the stuff that's going on, it really bothers me. Like uh, uh, here at Collins, we uh, help support John Clayton and his work. I don't know if all of you, Robert, are you familiar with John Clayton? Okay, uh, Darren, uh, John Clayton, John is. Uh, John Clayton is a former atheist uh, who worked with Madeleine O'Hara, a member of the American Atheist Society, converted to Christ, is a devout Christian. He's a scientist, uh, has two master's degrees, 
uh, in science, and he, he he's head of the science department at a high school in South Bend. And for years, he's lectured, he's really studied in the field of, of evidences, especially in evidences for the existence of, of God and, and uh, the evidence for creation and all. He's doing an outstanding job. And you know who his most staunch attackers are and the people that's trying to destroy him and, and cut him down uh, and, and destroy his whole, whole ministry? He's, he's led no telling how many people to Christ. Uh, he's, been a, he's, he's spoke in Europe and all over this country. He earns his own living. Uh, that uh, in three weekends out of four, he's out lecturing somewhere in school auditoriums and civic auditoriums, uh, literally outstanding in the field of, of evidences. And his the people that are the strongest at trying to cut him down and put him down and destroy him are are fellow members of the Church of Christ. Uh, that, that's I mean. They're putting out publications, the heirs of John Clayton, and they write congregations before he goes to. Nobody denies he's a devout, devout Christian or that he believes in the inspiration of the Bible or that he doesn't do a good job presenting some evidences for the existence of God and all. Uh, but he's not right down the line on the tradition of the elders on, on all the points. And so that that is, and, and by the way, that happens in, in, in uh, most of the fundamentalist groups. That if they've got anybody that is scholarly and and does a good job, if he's not right down the line on the tradition of the elders, uh, they'll do all they can to destroy him. Uh, we need more people that uh, realize that uh, uh, the the evidence, being able to handle the evidence for the existence of God, and the evidence for the inspiration of the Bible, uh, just as Jesus said, they're weightier matters of the law. That just may be a little more important. Uh, than, uh, than whether or not you got a piano when you worship. It just on an important scale, it may just be a little more more important uh, uh, than that than that particular topic. But uh, there's a big world out there, and I'm saying that while we're having church ball leagues and uh, and fun and games and and and, and uh, the entertainment feature and all of this, and then while we're spending our time uh, arguing over some of these things like that. Uh, our world, our, our society is, is going down the tubes. And, and the, the real fight uh, is taking place uh, uh, in places outside our church building. And so if, it, if, it's, if we're not out in that arena, we're just not going to be in the, fight, in the fight at all. But I think that uh, the interesting thing when I read that, I think many of uh, Lincoln and Washington and those people, they were not the least bit hesitant when they were out in the public world in quoting the Bible and making it clear they believed in God and all, and uh, somehow or another we've been bamboozled into believing that, uh, you know, that we ought to keep our mouth shut in certain arenas. I think we're not talking about forcing anything on anybody, but we had a, Barbara and I had an experience just shortly back at an in-service at, uh, in education you have in service, which is really training classes and all before they start the year. And so the first keynote speaker was Kyle Rote Jr. Any of you familiar with Kyle Rote Jr.? All right, he uh, was an All-American football player at Texas, All-American baseball player, uh, an All-State in three sports in Texas, and, and wound up an All-American soccer player and 
was considered the best professional soccer player in the United States uh, for a number of years. But anyway, he's, he, he does motivational talking now. Uh, and so anyway, he was speaking. And the interesting thing, here he's there speaking to teachers, and the, he, he speaks to all kinds of people on motivation. And uh, he quotes from the Bible. His, 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 uh, his uh, uh, whole, everything he said was based on a verse in the Bible, uh, be not deceived, God will not be mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And he, then he made the statement that he had no apologies for quoting the Bible because that was such an obvious truth that, uh, you know, I forget his exact wording, but you couldn't deny it. You know, and then he went ahead and talked about all kinds of things in education, and then he, and he came back to the fact that, uh, uh, that we were going down the tubes in our morality and everything within the system uh, because of, you know, putting God out of the picture and, and things like that. And so he wasn't, he wasn't a preacher delivering a sermon. And he, he's, he's actually paid for his services by the state. And he's doing all these talks. But I'm saying a good example that he is a believer and his belief is coming out in his talks. Uh, we had a, a guy invited to Swiss last year as part of our drug program. And he was... Randy, what's the guy's name that used to be the sportscaster for Channel 12? Randy, Randy something. Smith. Randy Smith. Uh, he's now the announcer for the Tennessee Vols, right? Well, Randy Smith, uh, announcing for the Tennessee Vols, uh, sportscaster, uh, he was invited to our school to speak as part of our drug program. So he got up and spoke. But in the process, very strong statements about his belief in God. You know, said that he, you know, was talking about priorities of life to the children, and said with him it had always been God first, and family second, and job third, and and he mentioned about turning down a job because that it became obvious in the interview that the job would come first, and he said uh, he told them that in his life God was first, his family second, and the job third. And so anyway, he's, he's speaking for the, there he is, he's an announcer for the Vols, he, he does sports, did sports on, on TV here. But the point is that there again, because he believes, it comes out in that area. And I'm saying that, that all Christians have a, a circle, uh, you know, of people that you're around. And, and uh, you have people you're in contact with that I'm not. And Robert does, and Darren does, and John does, we all have a circle some of our circles is bigger. As you get older, it becomes bigger. The more prominent you are, the bigger it becomes. And so if Christians take their Christianity outside the walls of the building and, and speak out on the job and things like that, I mean, that is the only way that will turn. It's not a matter of force. It's what is right will come out if it's given a fair shake. It, 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 uh, Christianity is not getting anywhere because it's not really getting a fair shake. It's not being thrown out on like Aaron and Moses threw their snakes right out there with the, with the with Pharaoh's people and, and their snakes ate up the rest. Well, I believe we'll throw our snakes out there with the atheists. They'll eat them up. But we've, I think we need to get them out there. You can't, you can't just hold on to that thing. Any, anybody with any, any other comment? Okay. We're going to... Uh, study the, the sacrificial system uh, in the Old Testament, obviously not hitting everything on it, 
Uh, I've got a few chosen passages to give a summary of it when we come to the New Testament. Uh, anybody that's read the Old Testament has to somewhere along the line become just overwhelmed with the absolute thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of animals that are killed for sacrificial purposes. It's not a matter of occasional sacrifice. Uh, when Solomon dedicated the temple, I can't even remember. It went up into the hundreds of thousands of animals that were sacrificed. And so uh, the first, uh, after the fall of man in Genesis 3, we find our first sacrifice in Genesis 4. And then from that point on, it's like every time there's an important decision that's made, an important act, an important statement, uh, there's a sacrifice. Uh, Abel, and in fact, we want to turn to Genesis 4, 2 through 7. Uh, we have the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers. How, how many other of the children of Adam and Eve were alive at this time? We can only speculate. Uh, the indication is that Adam and Eve had already given birth to a number of children. Uh, I think Cain makes it clear afterwards that there were uh, people living on the earth and all at this time. Uh, but notice in the event there, Mark, would you read that verses 2 through 7? Uh, yeah, Genesis 4, 2 through 7. I forget I've got two. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. All right, now, notice there... Man, the sin of mankind takes place in uh, Genesis 3. And then we come to the first children that are mentioned by name of Adam and Eve. And like I said, all evidence is they had many other children, you know, at the, even at, at this time. And, and here the mentioning comes about uh, because of the sacrifice. Uh, that's interesting. The only two that's mentioned are the two that was involved in this sacrifice and God showing favor to one. And so that uh, uh, Abel offered a sacrifice to God and it was acceptable. It was a blood sacrifice. He offered, a, he offered an animal and uh, Cain didn't. Uh, you know, he offered the fruit of the ground. Uh, I remember the only way I ever heard that used as a young person in my religious background, was that, you know, our heritage uh, in the Restoration Movement has been to show that, you know, you're supposed to do everything exactly right or it's worthless, and so we've used it there, you know, that uh, Cain did things right and his was accepted, and, and uh, I mean, Abel did, and it was not. Obviously, they both believed in God, right? I mean, they both worshiped God. Uh, most of the scholars, in fact, all that I've read from down through the years, uh, believe that there's a little more involved there than just the fact that, uh, uh, that, that Cain just didn't do exactly what he did. Uh, 
there were grain and uh, agricultural offerings to God as we go through. The law of Moses didn't just have meat offerings. It had grain offerings and agricultural offerings. And all these offerings stood for some particular thing. Now, there was a sin offering, uh, the peace offering, uh, the substitute offerings, and um, the fellowship offerings. But behind all of it, anything that was really and truly tied in with sin, there had to be blood. Uh, there, there, if it was tied in, there, it, that had to be the basis and of it. In fact, uh, sometimes something with the agriculture is looked on as, as something that can substitute only if you couldn't afford an animal. For example, under the law of Moses, uh, for a lamb without blemish would be required. If you couldn't afford a lamb, two turtle doves would suffice. For example, when Jesus' parents offer turtle doves, that lets you know that they were not wealthy people. Uh, or they, not, they weren't even up to average when it comes to wealth. Uh, if you couldn't afford that, you couldn't afford that, then something else, you know, you could drop even a little lower than that into a grain offering, but it was looked at because you couldn't even afford the other, but the blood was what was required. Uh, going back to the Jewish scholars' comments on that and the scholars down through the centuries, uh, the consensus is that, that uh, there may have been something there in Cain's denial, in other words, that uh, that that there had to be any kind of a sacrifice of any kind of a vicarious sacrifice on his behalf or bloodshed for his sin, and so Abel, his faith wasn't just the doing of the actual act, uh, just like we think of faith in Christ. It's not the doing of the actual thing; it's actual faith in that person and in his sacrifice. And if that's there, the doing of the actual things will just take place. But we're, when we talk about faith in Christ, we're talking about trust in Christ uh, as the sin atonement for us. And so the faith that the Hebrew writer says that Abel had, if it's in keeping with what is expected of in Jesus, his, his faith was actually in that. In other words, he is acknowledging here that he sinned. And uh, there needs to be the sacrifice or the shedding of blood. There is a possibility. We can only guess on the things with Cain because we don't have all the details. There is the possibility of a denial of Cain's part uh, in that. In other words, it had been very easy for him to get the animal and offer as a sacrifice. And so remember, uh, he became envious of Abel. And remember, God responded to him and said, well, if you do what was right, uh, then... Yours would be accepted too. But rather than do what was right, he killed Abel. And so there, there, in other words, we can't say that he was ignorant of what God wanted or anything like that. He purposely chose not to do it. And then he became so mad at Abel uh, that he killed him. And so we, we only have the bits and pieces of that story, but for whatever reason, he willfully refused to offer a blood sacrifice uh, to God. All right, now, the next event uh, of a sacrifice, we come to Noah. You want to turn over to Genesis 8, 20 through 22. And right after the flood, when uh, God is, uh, has destroyed the, the known world at that time uh, because of sin, 
Then we have this statement. Uh, Mark, would you read that, please? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taken some of all the clean animals and clean birds. He sacrificed burnt offering on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. All right. Notice there in that context, the, the first thing that uh, Noah wants to do after that event is, is, is make an altar and offer a sacrifice before God. And, but then this sacrifice is tied into the covenant. And it's right after the, the sacrifice that God makes this statement that never again. And then we can continue on through the ninth chapter. We won't for lack of time. But suffice it to say that that sacrifice was completely tied up into this covenant promise of God. That before the promise, uh, there is this offered in faith sacrifice uh, on Noah's part, and then we have the statement by God. Well, obviously, the, there's no explanation given. Uh, all indication is this was a very natural thing for Noah, that before the flood, that this has been a, this has been a natural part of Noah's life. Remember also, we haven't even come to the uh, the law of Moses yet, but yet in with the uh, going into the ark and all, we have the animals divided up into clean and unclean animals, and we can see that as you read the whole context from the sacrifice, that only the clean animals were offered as sacrifice. In other words, the evidence is that all this information that will eventually be written down by Moses was already in the minds of these patriarchs, and, and they had been taught that. And then what we have, as man spreads on the face of the earth and gets farther away from God, uh, the, those, the message becomes perverted in various ways. And then what we have with Moses is, is a re-giving and a restatement uh, as God takes these people and forms them into a nation and, and gives them his law. But again, our notice is just the fact that tied in with the covenant uh, was this, sac this sacrifice and the, the blood sacrifice by Noah. All right, now, the next is uh, Abraham, Genesis uh, 12, uh, 1 through 9. Uh, Darren, you want to read that, please? Is that 1 through 9? Uh-huh. Now the Lord has said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred into the Father's house, and to a land that I will show you. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old, and he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance they had they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go to the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land from the place of Sikkim into a plan of Morah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there build he an altar unto the Lord, and appeared it to him. And he removed 
from him, from the Atatula Mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent at Bethel on the west, and high on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord, and made a journey going on still toward the south. Okay, notice two times in that context we have the this covenant made with Abraham where he's promised the land, he's promised that a nation will come from him, and he's promised that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through his seed. And then two different times we've got this altar that's made by Abraham. And so we can see this, this concept uh, of worship and the sacrifice and all is something that Abraham is already familiar with. And it comes right on the heels here of the covenant that God makes with him. Now turn over to the 15th chapter and uh, look what happens here. Uh, let's see, Robert, would you read that verse uh, uh, 6 through 11? Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the but Abram drove them away. All right, now notice again, the covenant renewed with Abram. And here we have the statement in, in the 15th chapter. And this is before Abraham's circumcision. It's before that uh, he's offered Isaac up. And he said it, he believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then right after that, we have God telling Abraham to bring him a heifer and a goat and a ram, and so he's to kill these animals as a sacrifice. Uh, Paul, later on, in talking about the salvation of Abraham, uh, in, in emphasizing that salvation is by, not of merit, and it's by grace through faith, goes back to this very verse uh, two, two or three different times. In 15.6, that Abraham believed God and was credited to him righteousness, and remember, he points out that it's before Abraham did anything. Uh, like in Romans, the fourth chapter, he says, when was it credited? Before or after circumcision. And then he said, not, not after, but before. And circumcision was simply a, a sign or a seal of the righteousness that he had in his heart. But he seems emphatic on, on driving it home that Abraham, because of his trust in God, was counted righteous before he'd ever done any physical thing uh, whatsoever. And then we can see when we go back and read that context, just as when the covenant is given to Noah, uh, that we have this statement here of, of, a, of a sacrifice made to God. So he puts his trust, uh, it's credited, and we have the sacrifice uh, that is given. So this concept then, all through what we call the patriarchal age, of sacri blood sacrifices offered to God that were tied in with one's trust in God, where it's able by faith offer the sacrifice. Uh, Abraham, it's credited to him for righteousness, sacrifice. And then we have uh, Noah, 
immediately after his deliverance from the ark. Uh, then he steps out, builds an offer, offers a sacrifice immediately. Then we have this pledge by God, this covenant, that even though you're wicked and everything, in other words, you deserve to die. But, but the altar is built, the sacrifice, uh, and then the statement that, that never again uh, would this happen. So, obviously, we begin to see that the, these sacrifices are, we haven't had anything spelled out in detail. We've just had the story to this point. But we can see that these this blood sacrifice is somehow tied in between a man and God, and his being right with God, and his being righteous with God, and the covenant he had with God. Somehow, we don't know how to this point, but somehow the sacrifice is tied into that. Okay, turn to Job now. I go to Job right after Abram because from a time scholar, time standpoint, I should say, Job, uh, the majority of scholars believe, uh, lived at right about the time that uh, Abraham did, uh, which is about 2,000 years before Christ. Okay, and you read that in Job uh, 1 and verse 5. When a period of hastening had run its course, Job would sin and have him purified. Early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking perhaps my children might have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Okay. okay, early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God. Well, then God has with them tied into the fellowship and the relationship, uh, so much so that, uh, remember, Cain could not be in fellowship with God without a blood offering. Uh, that, I mean, so tied in to a fellowship with God that without a blood offering, Cain could not be in that kind of fellowship with God. Uh, so tied in that it's the first thing that Noah wants to do when he gets out of the ark, and then the covenant is, is stated. Uh, so tied in that when the promise and the covenant is made with Abraham, the sacrifice is given. That right after the statement that he would be counted righteous because of his belief, immediately you have this blood sacrifice that's offered. And then here as we, as we move through into Job, uh, we see Job, in thinking about the possible sins of his children, offers a sacrifice for each of them. The indication is each morning. So uh, they had this tied into their mind. The sacrifices had something to do with sin, had something to do with fellowship, had something to do with the covenant. Now, the details are not spelled out, but it keeps coming up, and we can multiply the examples that somehow or another sin and fellowship and the covenant is tied up into these blood sacrifices uh, so that you simply couldn't be right with God without them. Okay, now, in the uh, Law of Moses, um, too many to even turn to, we have all the various sacrifices that are given. Suffice it to say that when the Ten Commandments are given, it's ratified by the various sacrifices. Uh, the Levites are set aside to offer these various sacrifices. Uh, they have sacrificed for every possible sin that anybody could commit. Peace offerings, uh, sacrifices for sin, uh, fellowship offerings, 
all of this tied in and always the thing with blood there's the Passover uh, where the, again the blood had to be sprinkled and then the blood of a lamb and then God passed over the Israelites uh, there's the example in Leviticus 16 of the scapegoat uh, where they took a goat and put their after having a sacrifice then they would get a live goat and put their hands on the head of it the priest would and turn it loose into the wilderness and it was to bear the sins of the people and this was somehow tied in uh, to these blood sacrifices and we come all the way through and and over and over and over there is the the actual when we think of our worship today when you if you were to contrast it with worship under the old testament the bulk of Old Testament worship revolved around the sacrifice. I mean, you actually, I mean, I know they sung and prayed and everything, but I'm saying their worship revolved around that sacrifice. If there was no sacrifice, there was no worship. Uh, anytime they made a mistake, anytime they did anything big, anytime they felt religious, anytime they were worried or concerned or whatever it was, there just simply was always a sacrifice to God. If they wanted to make an oath or a promise, there was a sacrifice uh, that was made, made to God. All right, another interesting thing happened with the law, though. The sacrifices for the first time are restricted to one place. And under the law, at first, they have the tabernacle, and they can only sacrifice in the tabernacle. And then, of course, with the temple, only the temple. So in the law of Moses... All sacrifices are cut off, at least legally cut off, I should say, except in the temple. And this will become important later on, that all of them would take place in the temple itself. But yet, as you go through and you read it, by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, uh, animals are offered as a sacrifice. Now, something else happens, though. These sacrifices... Uh, could deteriorate into becoming no more than rituals. And, uh, and the prophets seem to constantly have the job to uh, keep this from happening and to, uh, to explain the meaning of it, the spiritual meaning. In other words, the people had a tendency to degenerate spiritually and the sacrifices were just like rituals that they went through. And the, and the prophets would be right there on the scene. For example, uh, remember Saul when he disobeyed God and uh, then he went and offered a sacrifice and remember what Samuel said when he came to Saul in 1 Samuel 15. He says to obey is better than to sacrifice. And remember then God rejected Saul as king. And what he was saying here that no sacrifice can atone for willful disobedience. In other words, the, whatever part this was playing in their worship service, it did not atone for willful disobedience. And for anybody to think that they could worship God and offer all these sacrifices at the same time disobey God, the prophets were there to remind them constantly this couldn't take place. In Amos, the fifth chapter, beginning with verse 21, they are offering all kinds of sacrifices and Amos tells them that God doesn't want their sacrifice. Uh, that their sacrifices are odious to God. And then he goes on, to obey is better to sacrifice. And, and his whole point in the context is that they were going through all the religious service, offering all these sacrifices, 
but yet they were living ungodly, and the result was that the sacrifice had no meaning whatsoever. So we see that the sacrifice could not be divorced from godliness in life, that you couldn't just live the way you choose and then come and just offer your sacrifices on a regular basis and be right with God. Uh, the sacrifices had meaning only to the extent that somebody was walking with their faith in God. And that's true as we come all the way through the, and maybe that's showing us something about uh, our relationship in the New Testament too, that uh, no amount of worship services or eating the Lord's Supper or, or going through the rituals is going to substitute or atone for an ungodly life that's really not uh, wa walking with God. No longer remains Right. Right. Any comment or questions on the Old Testament before coming to the the new? Okay, now, in addition to what you have in the Bible, when you go back and study pagan religions, in fact, that's what I spent most of my time doing today is just reading various study, uh, sources, studying the various pagan religions that have existed through the centuries. And some of the things were pretty interesting. I knew that the pagans offered sacrifices and all. But what I found out was, among other things, that all, ALL, without exception, all pagan religions known to history have had this concept of offering blood sacrifices to God. There's just none exist without that. Uh, every single solitary. Now, they may at times offer animals that were unclean to the Jew. Uh, you know, maybe a pig or whatever. Uh, they, they may at times uh, uh, pervert it. And their, their, their attitude about God is different than the Jew. For example, uh, in the pagan religions, we have a God that, gods, plural, that just kind of hoover over these sacrifices and they argue and fight among one another as to who's going to get it. And, and you have man trying to appease gods and gods hoovering over it. But still, there is this concept that the gods are angry and you appease them uh, with this sacrifice. All right, now here's the difference. In the Bible you have a very pure and holy uh, ritual that is tied in with godliness of behavior and trust in God. And it's looked on as an atonement for sin. But what you have is a holy and righteous God who is telling them how to do this and, and that there is a need for it. In pagan religions, you have this concept of offering the blood sacrifice, but our gods are plural, and they hoover over it, and they, and they fight over the sacrifices, uh, and individuals are always doing it, trying to please. So we have an angry God, and the sacrifice is, is, is in somehow to, to keep the gods from being mad at them. But there is the concept of sin. And, and they honestly, in pagan religions, looked at that, in that, that that sacrifice in some way was going to atone for their mistakes so that God wouldn't be angry at them. 
and they may offer humans as sacrifice and the unclean animals. But it's a concept. Now, what does that do to your thinking? If that is in all pagan religions, without exception, all through antiquity, for as long as we have recorded history. Because it's the same source. Oh, okay, that uh, there's two approaches that you can take, and we'll have to see which one would stand in the face of the evidence. Now, one is that what would the uh, the liberal uh, theologians say? Let's say that Judaism evolved from that practice. Okay. The okay. The uh, the liberal theologian would say that. Uh, that the sacrifice was invented by man in an effort to uh, that he looked at the thunderstorms and the hurricanes and the earthquakes and the typhoons and he says hey somebody ever doesn't like me you know he's angry and so I'm going to try to appease him uh, and uh, and then uh, in in talking about that uh, you know, he has all these kinds. And then you have this evolving over a period of time uh, to the point we have Judaism coming out of, of that kind of thing. Okay, now there's several problems there. First is, when we go back far enough, contrary to what the sometimes secular historians try to leave the impression of, and that is that you have polytheism evolving into the monotheism, when you go back further and further and further, you get fewer and fewer and fewer gods. And you actually go back to monotheism. And so what we find is that a plurality of gods actually evolves forward and that uh, when the Jews take, the, uh, take this stand or Abram uh, with, with one god, it's actually a step backward, uh, not, not a step forward. Also, we can see that uh, whenever we have this in the, in the Old Testament, it is always tied into a holy, righteous God uh, who's not vindictive, who's not up there uh, trying to destroy man, but a holy, righteous God that recognizes that man has got himself into a terrible situation and something's going to have to be done for it. And, and in the Old Testament, what happens is these atonements, rather than depict God in the way the pagans does, what the atonements do, they don't say anything negative about God uh, in the Old Testament. The atonements keep saying something negative to man in the Old Testament. They keep saying over and over and over and over again, number one, you're a sinner. And number two, there's going to have to be something to atone for your sins. That you are not good enough. You are a sinner. You don't merit anything. There needs to be atonement for your sin. Moses would explain that blood was important because of the life of the flesh is in the blood. We know that our life is literally in our blood so far as the flesh is concerned. And that's in Leviticus, the 17th chapter. And so because blood is life and symbolizes physical life in its entirety, it was chosen uh, by God in, in, in that way. And so without the shedding of blood, according to the writers, uh, there would be no remission of sins. 
So what we look at is that we see something in the Bible that is very sublime and very pure and very honorable and very logical. And we look at the pagan religions and we see traces of something that's very pure and sublime and, and logical, but it's been perverted uh, in, in many ways. But yet uh, the fact that it's there would be evidence that obviously that there is a central source somewhere. Now, as to the argument of where does this originate? Uh, did the sacrificial system originate in the mind of man uh, or with, uh, with God? Uh, I thought one of the interesting things I read is that uh, uh, Greek scholars, for example, have always thought it was appalling. Most of your philosophical and great scholars through antiquity have thought this business of killing animals to appease God, keep in mind they're coming from their pagan background. So pagan scholars coming from that pagan background have always thought it was appalling and ridiculous. In other words, I'm saying that there is nothing about it that is logical from the pagan standpoint. The idea of gods up there hoovering and waiting, and can't, they can't wait for you to offer the sacrifices so they can get at it and eat it up. Uh, in, in, in some ways. And they even write that the gods hoover like flies uh, over the sacrifices. So rather than being something that man would think of, uh, the way the pagans did it, it was actually something that their own greatest scholars and thinkers uh, have always considered appalling and, and illogical, something that didn't make sense to them, that you would just go out and slay animals for no reason whatsoever. Okay. Let's come to the New Testament, and let's see, John, the uh, first chapter. Okay, uh, John, would you read that verse 29, please? Uh-huh. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay. So our first statement then, uh, here we have an, an Old Testament uh, where the worship is based entirely on sacrifices. And we've noted that those sacrifices tie into fellowship and sin and atonement uh, for, the, for the man. But nobody fully understands it. And if we go back and read Jewish thinking at this time, the Jews honestly thought that the offering of these sacrifices atoned for their sins. That's what they honestly had. They offered the sacrifices, they gave the blood and all, and they honestly thought that by this, there was being made an atonement, an appeasement to God for their sins. We have this statement by John that they would not have understood at the time. Now, I don't know how much John understood. I don't believe he understood it either. But anyway, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is introduced to us. We finally will find out is the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. Uh, that he is as the Lamb that would take. Now, what has happened though, remember Paul said that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That through what we call the Old Testament, our minds have been educated and spiritually and through all these hundreds of thousands if you were a Jew living before Jesus in the time of Jesus 
can you imagine how many sacrifices regularly regularly you have constantly been going out and getting animals and slaying them and, and having them offered a sacrifice to God I mean just just as many about as many times as you could possibly you've taken these animals and, and killed them and brought them before God uh, there, there is nothing in the, in the Old Testament worship that, that has God has gone more out of his way to impress on your mind than the fact that you're a sinner if you're a Jew, that you're a sinner and there has to be an atonement. That you're a sinner, there has to be an atonement. So every time the Jew offered that sacrifice, constantly it was pressed on his mind, I'm a sinner, there has to be an atonement for my sin. And so what has happened, the Jew has been psychologically prepared for Christ and the Messiah. But it's not just the Jew. The entire civilized world, or you might say the entire world, has this con it may be perverted in various ways but when you go to talk to people the, the, the more of whatever concept that you're trying to get across, they already have in their mind the easier it is to communicate to them uh, the less they have the more difficult, uh, simple things can become difficult if they don't have the concepts in their mind, but even when the gospel goes out that everybody has this concept. They all are familiar with religion and this offering of sacrifices so that when they started to preach about Jesus as the Lamb of God and the sacrifice, everybody had a basis and a foundation from which, from which to operate. And by the way, it's another interesting thing, not just among the Jews, but at this point in time, we've got the civilized world of that day looking for some kind of Messiah. Uh, the, the, this, keep in mind that these prophecies of the Messiah started even before Moses and the Jews have been scattered all over the civilized world and every place they go they take this, this information of the Messiah so everybody is looking for a Messiah and everybody also has this concept in their mind of, of, of sacrifice and atonement for sins okay turn over to Hebrews now the last one in the, in the New Testament Hebrews the 8th 8th and ninth chapter. <clears throat> okay, here you have uh, Jesus being identified as the high priest uh, to the law. Here again, the, the preparation of their minds by the law of Moses the prophet under the law represented God to the people. The priest represented the people to God. Uh, that was the difference between the two. The prophet is a spokesman for God. He represents God to the people. The priest is a spokesman for the people, and he represents the people to God. Well, Jesus now is, the Jews, by the way, were, were looking for three people. They were looking for somebody like Moses, and they were looking for a great priest, and they were looking for a great prophet. Uh, and, and, they, and a lot of them thought that great prophet would be Elijah that would come back to life. Well, Jesus was going to be the three road in the one, but the Jews, based on the statements of the Old Testament, looked for all three. So he identifies Jesus uh, as the fulfillment that the, ever this high priest was simply a type or a symbol of the Messiah to come. And he talks about the superior of it over what they have in the old what they have in the Old Testament 
And then in the ninth chapter, he talks about the offering of these sacrifices and the blood that was offered. And verse 9 of chapter 9, this is an illustration for the present time, indicated that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the, of the new order. Uh, in a spiritual sense, anything physical can only stand for something spiritual. And by the way, I think that we in the New Testament sometimes make the same mistake that these Jews were making there. They were looking and, and deriving their satisfaction out of the doing of this particular physical thing and the physical blood that was being offered when in reality it stood for something else and it was that spiritual concept uh, in the same way today with your worship. Uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper are physical acts. But it's not the physical acts that are the important matter. It's the spiritual act that the physical act stands for. Now we're not saying you don't do the physical act, just like they offer the sacrifices. Uh, and, and they had to offer it. Uh, remember what happened in the case with Abel and Cain. But we're saying that God wanted them to understand that this sacrifice has a spiritual message. And it's a spiritual message that's really important to you. And, and any physical act in our religion, God is spirit. They that worship him have to worship in spirit and truth. Any physical act is simply symbolic of a spiritual truth. And the physical act has no significance, no meaning whatsoever, separate and apart from the understanding and appreciation of that spiritual truth. And so he tells them that all of this was not it in and of itself. Okay, then he says in verse 11, Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, uh, not the man-made one. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is a mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free. All right, notice again, the new covenant is not valid without first the sacrifice. Remember the covenant with Noah? First, the, the, you've got the sacrifice validating the covenant itself. Uh, the same thing with the law with Abraham. The covenant, the validation in the, the sacrifice. Moses, uh, the covenant and the validation in the sacrifice itself. And now in the New Testament, the covenant, the validation within the sacrifice. In other words, the entire covenant stands on the sacrifice of Christ. Everything back there pointed to it, and everything here stands on the, on the sacrifice itself. And, and this business of talking about church, 
or just in terms of just doing things or or involved in various ways or accumulating Bible knowledge or anything or anything like that, that all of Christianity is based on the sacrifice of Jesus. It begins with our realizing that we are sinners and we are not going to heaven because we might worship a little more accurately than somebody else. We're not going to heaven because we happen to be completely covered by the water in our immersion. And we're not going to heaven because we uh, eat grape juice and unleavened bread. You're going to heaven if you go because you understand and appreciate that you are a sinner without any merit whatsoever and you have your trust in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that everything over there, all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of sacrifices constantly pointed out to their mind, Noah, you're not good enough. Abraham, you're not good enough. Uh, David, you're not good enough. Samuel, you're not good enough. None of you are good enough. And they just kept, they, over and over and over, the sacrifices went and the cap sacrifices kept saying the same thing. You fall short. You're separated from God. You're not good enough. There needs to be an atonement for your sins. And then John introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And all Christianity is based on that concept of Jesus as our sin offering and the church, properly understood, is a hospital uh, for people that couldn't make it on their own, and their crutch is Jesus. And, that, and, and, it's, and it's through trust in his atoning sacrifice. We sometimes talk about walking by faith as being, we say, faith comes by hearing the word, and therefore walking by faith is doing what the word says. Walking by faith is walking with your trust in Jesus and, and, and for your salvation and your righteousness Obviously, if you have that, then you're going to obey him to the very best of your ability and, and understanding. Then in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, he sums it up and says that Christ's sacrifice is once and for all. And he points out that the very uh, inefficiency and lack of perfection of the old system is shown by the fact that they had to keep doing it. It just never, and now the job has been done once and for all. It's interesting also what happens right after this. Jerusalem is destroyed, just as Jesus predicted. The temple is destroyed, along with it, the sacrificial system. There has never been worship, according to the law of Moses, since that day. There are no sacrifices offered by the Jews. We see the wisdom of God in tying up that system into the temple. And then when God used Rome to destroy the temple and to destroy the country, that ended the sacrificial system. Out of the, the deathbed of Judaism came Christianity. And on top of the temple goes the Muslim mosque. And there's no Jew anywhere that can offer a sacrifice to God. He's either got Jesus or he doesn't have anything. So far as the, his own law is concerned. Any comments or questions, observations? Mm -hmm. Jesus, like, he's a sacrifice for our sins, but by the same token, we're to, sac to uh, sacrifice our own bodies. Mm -hmm. Okay, a good, in fact, Paul uses what he said, present yourself a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. 
would have had no meaning except for the fact that they fully understood what a sacrifice is. You totally dedicate and give up yourself. And so as Christians, what we do, Christ, under the old law, they offered that animal sacrifice. Uh, here he says, Christ has offered himself up for you. Paul says, your reasonable act of worship is to present yourself a living sacrifice to God. And so he's saying that uh, unlike the other guys who every time they made a mistake had to run and get the animal and, and slay it, Christ has already died for you. The only thing you've got to offer is the only thing that God wants, and that's present yourself a living sacrifice to God. And then he goes on to what, what is involved in, in that. And it's, uh, it's interesting how that in so many ways that we can cheapen what is really there by trying to boil things to little, down to little formulas and, and little rituals that, that we do. Uh, from Paul's standpoint, uh, an understanding of all of this would, would result in this individual literally offering himself up as his life as a sacrifice to God. I think, I think something that really sticks out in my mind, especially in chapters 8 through 10 in Hebrews, if you read it carefully, he always makes a point. He says things like, uh, well, the point of what we're saying is this, this is chapter 8, verse 1. We do, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. And on down in verse 5 it says, uh, they serve at a sanctuary, I guess the high priest, the priests serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. Right. And it keeps on. And um, like in chapter 10, verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And... Uh, and he comes on down and talks about what you said about it's impossible for the blood bulls and goes to take away sin. And and all through there he's making it clear that it's not it's not those outward things, it's just those those things were the way God chose to to operate the real, I mean the true system, like in nine twenty three it says it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. Um, but the heavenly things themselves are better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear uh, for us in God's presence. I don't know, it's just those outward forms are, he makes it clear in here. It's just, it's amazing how... People got hung up on the outward forms to the extent that those things, rather than be a mean, being a means to an end, became the end within itself. Uh... But, uh, see, I don't personally, I know in the, the heritage that I come from, I think the same thing has happened, that uh, what should be a means to an end in things like baptism or the Lord's Supper or those physical, have become an end within themselves, uh, that, uh, in, in, those, in those physical things. In other words, he's saying there that, that, that the proper thing was the spiritual understanding that should have come from all of that. And the sacrifices... The, the proper understanding that ought to come from that whole sacrificial system is the fact that we all need that atonement. We don't merit in any way, and our response ought to be to present ourselves a, a living sacrifice to God. I have a question. Um, uh, in Romans chapter 3, starting 
21, Paul talks about this, the sacrifice of Jesus. And it seems like to me that the, some of the terms and the language in there is, that's one of the hardest passages of Scripture for me to understand exactly what he's talking about. But it's all about what you're, what you're the sacrifice. We've all sinned. In verse 23, he says, We've all sinned, come short of the glory of God. Uh, Paul, Paul has spent uh, the first couple of chapters saying that Jews and Gentiles were lost. There's no excuse. Uh, that There's no excuse for not believing in God. He gives the evidence. Uh, no excuse in not believing what is right. He says the Gentile had his conscience, and he, and, and, and he, he could identify with the law. He sums up everybody in sin, and then he's going to wind up with there has to be an atonement uh, in Christ. There's no other way that we can stand uh, before God. He says, but now righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for all sin and all fall short for the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by. Christ Jesus, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement right. through faith in his blood. Okay, what exactly does atonement mean? Okay, atonement is payment for something. In other words, if I'm atoning for something, I'm making payment for it. And so what it was saying is that you can't atone for the mistakes. There has to be something else. And the sacrifice just kept saying it was this perfect lamb without blemish. There has to be something outside of yourself to atone for it. And like when in here, when he talked, uh, that they would relate perfectly to what Paul was saying about salvation. That uh, when they, all, a proper understanding, when, when Abel, I believe, offered that sacrifice and the difference between him and Cain, Abel realized that he needed, uh, there needed to be an atonement, there needed to be a sacrifice. He was acknowledging that he was a, that he come short and he had to put his trust in God. Cain, uh, I believe, is rejecting it. I believe he's he's he is rejecting. Uh, I think he is. Uh, how far away his attitude is from even the attitude of Eve, you know, and Adam before the sin, I don't know. But he he's obviously rejecting because he could have done it, and he actually got mad and and refused to do it. It comes across to me almost like you've. You've confronted a person with a wrong, and, and they just refuse to admit that they've done anything wrong. And, uh, and I think we find it today, what is the difference when we talk about this so-called good moral man who's not a Christian? And we'll say, well, he's a, a good man. You know, and we talk about it, how could a righteous God uh, sever him from all eternity? But is that guy so good? In other words, that... Uh, what you're doing as a Christian is you're saying, I acknowledge that I have sinned, I do sin, and that at my best I fall short, and I don't deserve anything. That guy is saying, I'm pretty good. And he literally is refusing to humble himself before God and say, no, I'm not the perfect character or anything of that nature, that I really deserve to die. And uh, he's actually saying that... Uh, he thinks he's good enough that God will take him. Uh, and, and, and I think there's a lot. And, and actually, um, some people become offended with the idea that, uh, you know, that they are sinners who, do, who actually deserve to die. 
he continues on from there. It says he did this to demonstrate his justice because his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So God's justice is involved in the sacrifice also. Yeah. Yeah, there had to be an atonement, and of course the blood of animals was not good enough, and, and so God gives him, God gives himself. So the only sacrifice that would, that would be good enough, I mean, we couldn't come up with it. There was no way for us to do that. Right. And so God had to prepare that sacrifice himself. Right. You know, it's interesting, you talk about all the evidences for the Bible, that uh, there is no way any human being could have even invented. I mean, forget about the prophecies and the, the miracles and the evidence for the resurrection. The intricacies that's there, the way it's intertwined, you've got this mystery that starts over there in the Old Testament, even the sacrificial system that you finally don't fully understand but when you do fully understand it it is so logical in other words it's like watching a, watching a mystery and finally when you get over here and you find out what happened it all makes sense but you're trying to unravel it all the way through but it's no question you know that the same author is behind that story because it wouldn't fit otherwise and the same there all these guys that wrote those parts and had a part in all of that didn't fully understand it and then when it's finally explained, it's all fits together like a, like a glove. What was interesting to me is in that uh, uh, study and you know, reading today on the pagan religions at all, is that they, everyone had the concept of sin. Every last one of them. They understood in some sense that they had sinned and offended God and, and there had to be an atonement for that sin. Anybody else?